Chapter 11 There is a hell, and if you don't look out, you are going there. And if thy right eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body be cast into hell. Matthew chapter 5 verse 29, Revised Version For this message I have five texts. The first is quoted above. The second is Matthew chapter 10 verse 28, American Standard Version. Be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The third is Matthew chapter 23 verse 33, American Standard Version. Ye serpents, ye offspring of vipers, how shall ye escape the judgment of hell? The fourth is Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, American Standard Version. Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. The fifth is Matthew chapter 25 verse 46, American Standard Version. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A very large proportion of the men and women in America today do not really believe that there is a real and awful hell. Indeed, a very large portion of the ministers and members of Orthodox churches today do not believe that there is a real and awful hell. I say they do not really believe that there is a real and awful hell. Theoretically, I presume the vast majority of ministers and members of churches do believe that there is a hell. That is, if you put to them the question, do you believe there is a hell to which the wicked are sent after death or after the return of the Lord Jesus, they would say yes. But their belief is not a real belief, a belief that grips them, a belief that shapes their lives and conduct, a belief the meaning of which they realize and that moves them to the action that they would put forth if they really believed it. There is a vast difference between a mere opinion and a real faith. I held the opinion that there was a hell long before I really believed that there was a hell. And I suppose a very large proportion of those who are not professing Christians hold the opinion that there is a hell of some kind in the next world, though perhaps not an everlasting hell, but their opinion is not a real faith. It has very little, if any, effect upon their conduct. This widespread loss of belief in a future hell of long and awful sorrow, pain, anguish, remorse, and despair is responsible for many of the terrible evils that are sweeping over our land at the present time. The loss of belief in such a future hell is responsible for the appalling increase in suicides. If men and women believed that every man or woman who committed suicide unless they were insane and therefore irresponsible, was going to an awful hell, an age-long if not everlasting sorrow, pain, agony, anguish, and despair, suicide would cease instead of increasing at the appalling rate it has increased in the last year. However great their sorrow in the present life, they would not jump from a lifelong frying pan into an everlasting fire. Loss of real belief in an awful and long, long hell is largely responsible for infatuated men and women killing the woman or man they love who does not reciprocate that love and then killing themselves. 
If these men and women really believed that such an act meant an eternity in hell, surely not one of them would do it. This loss of belief in an awful eternal hell is at least somewhat responsible for every hold-up, burglary, murder, and all this frightful crime wave that is sweeping over this land from New York to Los Angeles. If these men and women, who are unhesitatingly staining their hands with blood to get money by open or covert murder, realized that their actions meant an eternity in hell, the crime wave would subside into a great calm of righteousness in a day. A re-establishment of real belief in hell, as the Bible and Jesus Christ plainly teach, would do more to lift our land out of the awful chaos of crime and terror into which it has fallen. A belief in hell would do more than all the increase and improvement of police forces that can be devised, and all the enactment of more severe and better executed laws that can be imagined. The loss of man's belief in hell is responsible for the sickening and appalling increase of divorce, legalized adultery, and the ruin that comes to homes and children through it. If men and women who seek divorce because they tire of their spouse or feel their temperaments are incompatible realized their violation of God's law, they would not do so. If they have wickedly permitted their affections to be carried captive by someone other than their lawful wife or husband, and then realized that it was a violation of the law of God, and that the demands of decency meant an eternity in hell, this intolerable evil would cease at once. One of the greatest needs of our day is a restoration of real belief in the teaching of Jesus Christ concerning hell. If we could get men, women, and children in general to believe what Jesus Christ plainly teaches about hell, there would be a general cessation of crime, vice, divorce, suicide, and a general turning of men, women, and children to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and example. I have no expectation of getting men, women, and children generally to believe in hell, but I do expect to get many of you here to really believe in hell. So to get you to quit your crimes, if you are criminals, as some of you likely are, and to get some of you who are living double lives and are untrue to wife or husband to quit your vile and damning sin, and to get some of you who are contemplating divorce to give up the thought of that which is pretty sure to land you in the everlasting hell if you do it, and to get every one of you who may be contemplating suicide to give up this silly, cowardly, and desperate act you are planning, an act that will take you to an everlasting hell by lightning express, I hope to lead you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, surrender to Him as your Lord and Master, and confess Him publicly before the world. This is the only course of action that will save you from spending eternity in the everlasting fire, which was never intended for you, but was prepared for the devil and his angels, but to which all those who prefer to cast in their lot with the devil rather than to accept Jesus Christ will certainly go. It is certain that there is a hell. The first thought I wish to impress indelibly upon your minds, to impress so indelibly and vividly upon your minds that it will determine your whole future conduct, is that there is a hell. Not only is there a hell of suffering and torment of conscience in this life as the consequence of sin, but there is also an awful hell 
hereafter in the life which is to come, which is the only sense in which Jesus Christ ever speaks of hell. We talk of hell on earth, but that is only an expressive figure of speech. The real hell, the hell of the Bible, is after the present life is ended. It is certain that there is a hell hereafter. Why do I say so? First, it is certain that there is a hell beyond the grave awaiting vast multitudes now living unless they repent because Jesus Christ says so. He says so in the plainest, unmistakable language in every one of the above texts. I have purposely taken every one of my texts, not from the Bible in general, but from the words of Jesus Christ Himself. It was easy to do this because Jesus Christ has more to say about hell than any other person whose words are recorded in the New Testament. Jesus Christ had more to say about hell than Peter or Paul or James or John or Jude or all of them put together. Two Greek words are translated hell in our authorized King James Version. One of them does not properly mean hell at all, but Hades, the abode of all departed spirits, both good and bad, up to the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ. At that time the spirits of the righteous dead were taken out of their part of Hades, paradise, up into a heavenly paradise. But the wicked were left in their part of Hades, Tartarus. They will remain there until the judgment of the great white throne at the end of the millennium, when they will be cast into the lake of fire, the real hell. There is a third Greek word, used once in the New Testament, which is translated hell in both the authorized King James Version and the Revised Version, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, but which, strictly speaking, does not mean hell at all, but Tartarus, that part of Hades where the wicked dead and some of the fallen angels now are reserved unto judgment. After that, they too will be cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, the proper hell. Now, the Greek word properly translated hell is found twelve times in the New Testament, and in eleven out of those twelve instances it is used by Jesus Christ himself. Only in one instance is it used by anyone else, and that is James. Of course, hell is spoken of in numerous other passages where the word is not used, but most of these passages also are utterances of Jesus Christ. So to preach hell is to be Christ-like in your preaching. In the face of these facts, how utterly silly to say, as so many do, that they are too kind-hearted and too full of love for their fellow man to believe in or preach hell. Who was the kindest-hearted man that ever walked this earth? Who was the most full of love of any man who ever walked this earth? Beyond question, Jesus Christ is the one who preached hell more than any other New Testament writer or speaker. What about the men who say it is cruel to preach hell and try to accuse the kind-heartedness of John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards? These men were both among the greatest thinkers the world has ever known, and they faithfully presented the truth about hell. Whom are you really accusing? You are accusing Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ's love for men was of the genuine sort, and he proved his love in a more real and practical way than by lulling men to sleep with false hopes. He didn't play to the spectators to win the praise of empty-headed men, 
by telling them how kind-hearted and liberal they are, and how good they are, and how they are not sinners. He didn't tell them that there is a spark of divinity in all of them, and that they are in no danger of going to hell. Neither did he tell them that there isn't any hell anyway, and that they can get drunk, commit adultery, divorce their wives, oppress the poor, live luxuriously, take life easy while others starve, reject the Son of God, and still come out all right in the end. Men and women, why do you listen to these ministers of the devil, masquerading as ministers of righteousness? In your heart of hearts, you know that they are lying to you and lulling you to sleep by false hopes that will land you in an eternal hell. No, Jesus Christ showed his love, real love, genuine love, not camouflaged selfishness, by telling us the truth about hell. He showed his love by leaving heaven with all its glory, coming down to earth with all its shame, and dying the awful death of Calvary, where he bore the awful weight of our sins to save us from going to the hell he had told us about. Listen to Jesus Christ. You will if you are not a poor, blinded fool. The preacher who declares that there is no hell hereafter, or no very awful and long-enduring hell, is the most useful servant the devil has in this present dispensation. He is the devil's best servant. Of course, Colonel Ingersoll declared often and with great eloquence that there was no hell. But no really intelligent and fair-minded man or woman ever took Bob Ingersoll seriously. They know he was talking for many hundred dollars a night, and his private morals and private conversations were not of a character to give force to his words in public. But men do take ministers seriously. Many excellent men and women think anything their minister says must be so and often the personal morals and private conversations of this class of preachers is so exemplary as to commend their doctrine, and so they beguile many, mislead many, and encourage many to continue in sin and go to hell. Therefore, I say again, don't listen to them. Listen to Jesus Christ, and then you are safe. What does Jesus Christ say? Listen to my first text. Scripture and if thy right eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body be cast into hell. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Revised Version. These are the words of Jesus Christ, and they are from the Sermon on the Mount. I have given you the Revised Version. I have taken these words from the Sermon on the Mount for two reasons. First, because they exactly suit my purpose and state in a plain and unmistakable way the important truth I am trying to make you see and feel. I have taken them from the Sermon on the Mount for a second reason, and that is because most everybody says they believe that part of the Bible, even though they do not believe the rest of the Bible. These words are taken from that part of the Bible which most people profess to believe. I have taken these words from the Revised Version for two reasons. In the first place, I took them from the Revised Version because the Revised Version is a more exact rendering of the original than the authorized King James Version. And I have taken them from the Revised Version in the second place because there are many people, including some alleged scholarly preachers, who say that the Revised Version has done away with hell.
That shows how little they know about the Revised Version. There is still plenty of hell left in our texts. It is true the Revised Version does translate one word as Hades that the authorized King James Version translates as hell, and it is abundantly warranted in doing so. But where the Lord Jesus really spoke about hell, we find it in the Revised Version just as strongly as in the authorized King James Version. Now these words of our Lord Jesus Christ clearly teach there is a hell into which men are cast after death, and that hell is so awful that it would be better to suffer any conceivable lifelong earthly loss than to go there. If there is no hell after death, or if the hell after death is not a place of inconceivable agony, then the Lord Jesus was either a colossal fool or a shameless liar. If there is no immeasurably awful hell after death, then either Jesus Christ thought there was any way, in which case he was a colossal fool, or he knew that there was not, but taught that there was, to scare men into doing what he wanted them to do, in which case he was a shameless liar and a stupendous fraud. You cannot deny a hell after death of immeasurable agony and horror without making Jesus Christ out to have been a colossal fool or a shameless liar and stupendous fraud. But Jesus Christ was not a colossal fool. He was not a shameless liar, and he was not a stupendous fraud. He was a teacher sent from God who spoke the very words of God. He was the only begotten Son of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. That was his claim, and God Almighty set the stamp of his endorsement upon that claim by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is the best proven fact of history, and that indisputable fact proves Jesus Christ to have been a teacher sent from God who spoke the very words of God. Therefore, we must believe whatever he says. And he says that there is a hell after death, a place of conscious torment. Its loss and agony are so inconceivably terrible that it'd be better to suffer any lifelong loss here on earth than go there. As Jesus Christ says, it is settled. We know nothing about the future except what Jesus Christ tells us, either directly himself or through his inspired apostles. The wisest man's speculations and the greatest philosopher's speculations about the future are worthless. You may say, I don't believe what the Bible says, I think so and so. But your think so is not worth the breath you waste in telling it. Your opinion about either heaven or hell, or about the coming of Christ, or about anything else that lies in the future is worth no more than the opinion some man has about the interior of Africa who has never been in the interior of Africa. Your opinion is utterly foolish and futile guessing. The man we want to hear is the man who has been there, the man who knows. Jesus knows. Listen to him. Turn to another statement of Jesus Christ on this subject in Matthew. Scripture Be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Here Jesus tells us that hell is a place to which both soul and body go. The body does not go to Hades, the soul goes there. It may have some temporary body there, but this body that we now inhabit 
lies in the ground and disintegrates. But at the end of the thousand years, Jesus will raise the bodies of the wicked dead, the righteous dead having already been raised at his coming. But at the end of the thousand years, the wicked dead shall hear his voice and come forth. Their bodies will be raised, and soul and body will both be cast together into hell to suffer and spend eternity there. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It is evident from these verses that according to the teaching of Jesus Christ, hell is a place of physical torment as well as of mental anguish, of remorse, and of shame. The physical agonies of hell are not the worst agonies of hell, but they constitute a very important part of its misery. Even in this present life, sin has physical penalties. What awful physical suffering I have seen men undergo as a direct consequence of their wrongdoing! It will be so in a greatly enhanced degree in hell. Listen to a third statement of Jesus Christ. Scripture Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. And a fourth. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Here, the word hell is not found, but the fact of hell is set forth in vivid and appalling language, and it is Jesus Christ who is speaking. We see something of the awfulness of the suffering of hell, and we see the everlasting duration of hell. The question arises, does the word eternal used in both verses 41 and 46 mean never-ending? To this I would say that the word, according to its etymology, might mean simply age-lasting. But according to its unvarying usage in the New Testament, it does mean everlasting. I have shown this in my pamphlet, The Real Truth About an Everlasting Hell. But, furthermore, the word eternal is used twice in verse 46. In the first instance, it is coupled with the word punishment, and in the second instance, it is coupled with the word life. Now, what it means in one case, it must mean in the other, because certainly our Lord Jesus Christ was no mere trickster in his use of words. Therefore, he would not use the very same word in one part of a verse, but with an entirely different meaning in another part of the verse where it is used to contrast. So, what the word eternal means in connection with punishment, it must also mean in connection with life, and what it means in connection with life it must also mean in connection with punishment. Now everyone knows that the life that is the reward of the righteous is endless. Therefore, according to the teaching of Jesus Christ, the punishment of the lost must also be endless. Never accept any interpretation of any passage that inevitably involves making Jesus Christ out to have been a contemptible trickster in his teaching. Someone may ask, does the fire here mean literal fire? We will not stop to argue that now. If you take it as a figure of speech, remember that figures always stand for facts, and since Jesus was no liar, the figures he uses never overstate the facts. How terrific, how appalling must the facts be that warrant Jesus using such a figure as this? It is certain that there is an everlasting hell because Jesus says so. We have exactly the same reason for believing in a future hell for the wicked 
as we have for believing in a future life of blessedness for the righteous. God's Word Uttered by God's Own Son There is no other conclusive proof for either heaven or hell. Give up belief in hell, and if you are logical, you must give up belief in heaven or any future after death. Give up your belief in hell, such a hell as Jesus taught, and logically nothing remains but annihilation for everybody. But if you are logical, you will not give up one or the other. Jesus Christ taught both, and the known facts about His resurrection from the dead, and many other things also, compel us to accept Jesus Christ as a teacher sent from God, absolutely reliable and inerrant, who spoke the very words of God. It is certain, then, that there is a hell after death. Its agonies are so appalling that it would be better to suffer any loss or pain than go where the body and soul both share in its suffering, and its agonies are so awful as to warrant the figure of eternal fire, if it be a figure, in speaking of them, and its suffering never ends. If there were time or necessity, I could show you that if there is any future life at all, it is certain that there is an awful and eternal hell, because every fact of experimental psychology, every dictate of unprejudiced reason, and every known fact of God's present dealing with man points that way. The only thing against such belief is an appeal to prejudice and mere baseless sentiment, an irrational dwelling upon or drawing unwarranted inferences from some statements in Scripture. These inferences flatly contradict other plain statements of the same Bible. There is nothing more certain about the future than that there is an awful and eternal hell beyond the grave for many. If you don't look out, you will go there. Now, a few words about the second part of our subject. The first part of our subject was that there is a hell. We have seen that that is certain. The second part was, if you don't look out, you will go there. Nobody will escape hell without a conscious effort, without deliberate action, without doing one specific thing. We all deserve to go to hell, for we have all sinned, and God is an infinitely holy God. There is not a man or woman here, young or old, who has not sinned. Scripture For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him, God, a liar, and His word is not in us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10 There is not a man or woman here tonight who has not sinned outrageously. There is not a man or woman here tonight who has not broken God's first and greatest commandment, and thereby committed the greatest sin a man or woman can commit. What is God's first and greatest commandment? Listen to the words of Jesus again. Scripture And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the great and first commandment. Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 38. This is God's first and greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is, to put God first in everything. God first in business, God first in politics, God first in home life, God first in social life, God first in amusements, and God first in study.
Not one of us has ever done this our whole life through. Therefore, every one of us has broken this first and greatest of God's commandments, and therefore every one of us has committed the greatest sin a man or woman can possibly commit. We all deserve to go to hell, and we will go to hell unless we make some definite effort and take some definite step to keep from going there. No one ever drifted to heaven. Anyone who merely drifts, drifts to hell. Many of you here tonight are merely drifting. I once saw a little card. On one side of the card was this question, What must I do to be saved? Then God's own answer to the question was given as found in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, American Standard Version. Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. At the bottom of the card it said, Turn over. And turning it over, I found this question, What must I do to be lost? It gave the answer in one word, Nothing. One does not need to do anything to be lost. We are lost already, unless we do something definite. If you are on the Niagara River, way up above the falls and the rapids, and you just drift, you are bound to go over the falls. You do not need to take up the oars and pull with the stream in order to go over the falls. The way to keep from going over the falls is to pull upstream, and you must begin pulling before you get into the rapids. Well, we are in the current of sin, and the current is moving toward hell, at first slowly, but soon faster, and at last with a rush that cannot be resisted. Consent to drift, and you are sure to wind up in hell. If you don't look out, you will go there. In what way must we be aware in order not to go there? What must we do to keep us from going to hell? There is only one thing we can do that will keep us from going to hell. Anyone who does that one thing will escape hell and go to heaven. On the other hand, anyone good or bad, vicious or moral, liberal, generous or outrageously miserly, lovely and amiable, or mean and disgusting, Anyone who does not do that one thing will go to hell. What is that one thing? The answer is found repeatedly in the Word of God. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Read what God says. Scripture He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 3 verse 18 as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. John chapter 1 verse 12. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John chapter 3 verse 36. We have all sinned, as we have seen, and therefore are hellward bound. But Jesus Christ died for our sins. Scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. He made perfect atonement for our sins, and then he rose from the dead and lives today. He has all power in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he has power to give us victory over sin every day. Accept him as your atoning Savior who settled every one of your sins by dying for them on the cross. 
trust God to forgive you because the Lord Jesus died in your place. The moment you do it, your sins are all forgiven. Scripture Be it known unto you therefore, brethren, that through this man is proclaimed unto you remission of sins. And by him every one that believeth is justified from all things. Acts chapter 13 verses 38 through 39. Trust him also as your risen Savior to keep you from the power of sin, and he will. Do that, and you will be saved. Don't do it, and you will spend eternity in hell. Really doing it involves surrendering your life, your thoughts, your will, and your conduct to his control. It involves the open confession of him before the world. Real faith always leads to open confession. As Paul puts it, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9-10 through 10. What are you going to do? Are you going to choose heaven or hell? Will you accept Christ tonight? and make sure of heaven? Or will you reject Christ and make sure of hell?